0: This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hello! Bienvenuti! <laughs> this is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough.
1: And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough.
0: And welcome to episode five, right? Uh, yeah, a very
1: <laughs> special episode too because we're not doing, we're, I don't know how to put it because we're not departing from our usual format we're just
0: we kind of are
1: we're weaving ourselves together
0: yeah it's like we're getting married oh he held my hand very reluctantly just now. Ice cold. <laughs> I know, baby. I'm freezing. Okay, but anyway. Um, yeah, so we're, n- we're not starting off with a theme like we normally do. This is just one standalone episode because there's a very, very special thing happening in New Orleans right now.
1: It's raining cats and dogs.
0: Okay, other than that, <laughs> which the rain does affect it, but many of you know, and if you don't, shame on you, but it's carnival season.
1: And the great Mardi Gras. Is underway <laughs> Yeah.
0: That's a great uh, German accent i going there.
1: Well, it is Mardi Gras.
0: Yeah, it is Mardi Gras. Today, the first parade is supposed to kick off, and the rain outside is just hilarious.
1: Hilarious. So, we decided, because we're Louisianans. Yep, and I'm a New Orleanian. She's a New Orleanian, that we would devote this episode to... In the spirit of carnival season, Mm -hmm. to a Louisiana
0: author. Yes, a Creole lady. New Orleans lady. Can we sing that for like 10 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, today we're going to talk about Alice Dunbar Nelson
1: who is somebody who i wouldn't say is very near and dear to our hearts but mm-hmm. certainly somebody that you and i ha- are cognizant of prior to this episode.
0: and no the only reason that i'm cognizant of her <laughs> is because you gave me this wonderful book that she wrote and you inscribed it with the most beautiful note and you were just like you were like this is one of the few like woman creole writers yes. and i hope that one day you will be in the same category or whatever and it was wonderful and i was like oh my god like I realized for the first time that I haven't read anything from women Creole writers, and that upset me greatly.
1: Well, and she's special because, well, let me preface all this by saying my master's thesis was done on Mm -hmm. Louisiana Creole literature of color, so I got to delve pretty deeply into that genre of American writing, and as far as I know, Alice Dunbar Nelson is, if not the only one, one of only less than a handful of Creole female writers of color whose work still exists today. Yeah,
0: that's published and known. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So she's very special, and her her writing is so special. Well, not all her writing, but... We're going to be talking mostly about The Goodness of St. Roque, which is her most well-known collection of yeah. short stories. Yeah,
0: and that's the one that I've read. I haven't read anything else really yeah. except for some poetry. Right. So, um, yeah, that's very centered on, I guess, not even just New Orleans, but southern, oh. southeastern Louisiana. Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this will be exciting. I think it's great. We have a great story, actually, that's about carnival season. Yes. Um, that I love. So, yeah, we'll we'll get into that. But first, let's start with a little bit of history about who Alice Ruth Moore Dunbar Nelson, Nelson. is and how she got all those names. Yes. Man, that rain is really going. It is. Well, let me
1: say this before we really delve into the... Life and Times of Miss Dunbar Mm -hmm. Nelson. That in honor of Mardi Gras, we're going to be very laissez faire (laughs) with this episode. Let the good
0: times roll very unstructurally. We're
1: going to have, normally when we come into this, we've both done extensive research. We've typed up some stuff. We're both in the dark about what the other's going to say. Yeah. With this, we both know enough about her. We both
0: have done research. In the past. So Mm -hmm. we're
1: going to kind of have a conversation about. Yeah. Her life, basically. Exactly. And then roll into the story and do our regular analysis. But just a heads up, this is going to be a little, I don't know, lighter.
0: No scripts involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this will be fun. Yes. Okay, so to start off, she was born July 19th, 1875 in New Orleans, Louisiana, of course. Her mother was Patricia Wright, a seamstress, and her father was Joseph Moore, a merchant marine. And you know a little bit about their ethnicity and background.
1: Right. Well... First of all, I want to say, can you imagine how hot it was the day she was born?
0: I can't. I can't imagine living in New Orleans uh-uh. before AC. And I, guess, I know, like, my, my, gr- not my great aunt, my aunt has memories of, like, being a little girl or being a teacher oh, yeah. in New Orleans before there was air conditioning. <clears throat> it's like, too much. walking around.
1: Ugh, we yeah. struggled with the air on. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> you can imagine being a woman in a four-poster bed. <gasps>
0: giving birth. Giving
1: birth. Oh. In July. But anyway, that oh, being said, oh, no. um, the backstory on... Alice Moore uh-huh. is that she was the product of two Creole people of color,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, if I'm not mistaken, her mother um, was the product of a white merchant
0: uh-huh.
1: and a a woman of color, mm-hmm. um, and of course, her parents were born prior to the Civil War. I was about to say, I'm like, not. I don't know. I think that her her lineage is mostly free peoples of color. I'm okay. not sure exactly because there's a little bit of mystery shrouded. It'd be like honestly, yeah. If if somebody was going to talk about like our grandparents, mm-hmm. there's I mean like what are they going to do? Look at the census record. Mm. There's not a lot written about them because yeah. they were just normal people.
0: And I mean that's even further back in the 1800s. Oh sure. What, what records are there really?
1: There's not many. Yeah. So um, but we do know that she was a Creole person of color, and as such she functioned within this special sphere of society in Louisiana. Uh-huh. And maybe we can talk about I don't know how to phrase it. Louisiana had and continues to have a very special Racial caste system
0: mm-hmm. that's yeah.
1: totally different from the rest Completely. of the United States. Yeah, so you have this idea of white and black, mm-hmm. but there's so much stuff that falls in between. Yeah, and historically, I mean, you're a Creole woman of yes. color. Yes, your families are Creoles of color. But
0: I never, I never grew up having this. I don't know. I don't want to say formal education, but my my family never sat me down and was right. like, "We are Creole, and this is what it means to be Creole, and this is how you need to act." It's very much just seeing the attitude and hearing this through the conversations Mm -hmm. but when i started when i got older and i think you and i talked about it a lot in college and like beyond Oh, we did but just like the system that was in place where creoles had this kind of attitude i don't even want to call it an attitude it was there was a system in place Mm -hmm. where they set themselves apart in a lot of ways
1: creoles of color were afforded a great deal more social fluidity Mm -hmm. than just your average free person of color prior to the Civil War and then after the Civil War um, also. Now, Dunbar Nelson, as far as we know, was a Creole woman of color who happened to be black. Mm -hmm. There were also Creoles of color who were American Indians. So there's even that too, that separation. I
0: I don't even, like today, in the Creole culture that I'm raised in, all the Creoles that I know are black. I've never come across a white person who's like, oh yes, I'm Creole. And if I did, I'd probably be like... (laughs) <laughs> and it's
1: important, and you know, academically and for discussions like this, the term mm-hmm. of color is so important because historically, Creole's a white term, mm-hmm. and so when we, but today as yeah. Louisianans, when we think of Creole, we think of people of color anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly. But
1: when we're talking in a historical context, um, yeah. of color is important, and and Dunbar Nelson was a Creole woman of color, Sorry. and as such, she was, you know, even though we don't know a lot about her upbringing, we can assume mm-hmm. that, um, I mean. She was afforded a level of respect that maybe was not afforded to, would not have been afforded to say if Angelina Weld Grimke, someone yeah, we have talked about, yes, yeah. if she was in Louisiana mm-hmm. at the same time as Dunbar Nelson, yeah. she may not have been afforded. This but
0: around case. this time, there was a lot of pressure, and I, maybe I'm getting my years wrong, but I think from my family history, yeah. judging when the French left my family, right. this is around the time where. They were being creoles, and everyone in in Louisiana were being pushed to kind of distance themselves from mm-hmm. their French roots, from the culture they created, right. which included that system of the the caste mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. So as everything was anglicized, mm-hmm. that kind of superiority melted away. Because you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. how the one drop rule is a very English concept. C- yeah, exactly.
1: And it's the concept that American law has been based around historically mm-hmm. <clears throat> in the United States. If you've got one drop of African blood, mm-hmm. you're technically black. black yeah. um, whereas within the French system, there's this huge gamut. Mm-hmm. Um, terms like octoroon, quadroon, mm-hmm. they come from the French lexicon. Yeah. And the wider you are, the more social affluence you're afforded.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: and you're right, Dunbar Nelson was born in 70, 1875. Mm-hmm. So she was born during the height of the southern gilded age and louisiana was being heavily americanized around that yeah. time and there was a lot of pushback mm. you had a lot of french periodicals spring up in new orleans and in natchitoches wow. and saint martinsville and stuff uh-huh. like that but by the time dunbar nelson published the goodness of saint Roque* in 1899 the inevitability of louisiana's transformation was so people were so aware of it yeah that stuff like her writing in a way,
0: became very was, important.
1: yes, mm-hmm. it was, you know, we talked about Siddhkala Shah in a uh-huh. previous episode. Yes. And her writing was an attempt to preserve bits of her culture through the written word. Yeah. Um, that the same thing's happening with, um, with Nelson when she's writing. And by the time I'm trying to figure out my dates here, but roughly around the time world war two started, uh-huh. the Louisiana Congress um, officially they sort of did away with the legal necessity for all documents to be published in French and English. Wow. So that was the death nail, pretty yeah. well. Yeah, which um, is
0: sad because I, I really, I wish that I grew up speaking French, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I'm glad that I grow up being like, I'm a proud black woman and I happen right. to have this Creole culture too. I it's, think there's a lot of uh, negativity that was rooted in, in uh, Creole absolutely. superiority at some points, like we're a black community. And, and you know,
1: it's, I'm glad you're talking about that because um, Dunbar Nelson was born in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. was raised in the Creole social sphere. She attended straight university here in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. which is now defunct. It's a part of...
0: Diller University now. Which
1: still exists. Yes. And that's a historically black university. And
0: she started there when she was 15 um, in a teacher training program. Right. So...
1: And I think it's important to talk about, okay, so her mother was a seamstress, so Mm -hmm. she worked. Her father was a merchant marine, so he worked. But uh, I think it's important to discuss the fact that he was a merchant marine, the fact that she was able to work as a seamstress is indicative of their social sway.
0: Yeah, he but was, you no. have to wonder if it's like, oh, well, she seems a seamstress just, just for people of color. Or, I'd love or, to know. Yeah,
1: they're, they're, because New
0: Orleans is a special place in that there have definitely been just issues with race, of course, oh, and true. racism. I mean, here's where the schools were being integrated and this is where Ruby Bridges was right. famously mm-hmm. yelled at in the streets. So. They definitely have their problems, but on a day-to-day basis, you also see more interaction between mm-hmm. black and white people.
1: So. New Orleans, historically, I mean, in terms of the American South,
0: mm-hmm.
1: New Orleans is very special.
0: You were comparing it to where you grew up because it's a small town in Louisiana, right? And it's very segregated, and everyone Socially seems very segregated. comfortable mm-hmm. in that way. And it just kind of blew my mind.
1: Well, New Orleans is cordoned off geographically, and and. I think that's why creole culture kind of blossomed here mm-hmm. um, new orleans the greater new orleans area is separated from the rest of the state mm-hmm. to the north by lakes marpong and pontchartrain mm-hmm. and then it's fundamentally separated um to the west by rivers uh-huh. and then it abuts the gulf to the east and to the south yeah. so f- fundamentally it's cardened off so she and i grew up 45 minutes away from each other <laughs>
0: and it's a different world totally different yeah
1: um, but even in New Orleans, like you were saying, Creoles of color were not, I mean, it, they did not interact with white Creoles. So, I mean, even though they had their special sphere, yeah. they were afforded a little more respect. That did not mean there was a lot of uh, social interaction between the whites, the affluent whites That's and, true. And That's and true.
0: Um, That's still kind of today. It is. <laughs> they have their own Mardi Gras balls, you know. Oh, yeah. Well,
1: we are. It's a Mardi Gras episode. But yes. And in 1991 or 2, the state of Louisiana said that a crew could not parade unless they were integrated. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't even know that, no. Yeah. So all the quote-unquote ancient crews, uh-huh. which are the ones that were old, 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 they no longer parade. You, I mean, right? Yeah. They just have their balls. Yeah. Um, because they didn't want to. That's right. that's
0: terrible. My sister has a story about. I think she was either she was like a freshman in, in college, and she had gone to like her white friends were going to this this Mardi Gras ball, and, and I did not even want to tell the whole story, but there was blackface mm-hmm. involved, and, sure. <laughs> and like they're you know, very
1: secretive. Yeah. these are balls that you can't buy tickets to. Yeah, um, these are balls where.
0: Oh yeah, she knew someone. Oh. She, I think the girl that she knew was like the right. queen of whatever.
1: These yeah. are the balls where some of the new Orleans greatest families like debut their daughters socially mm-hmm. oh Gotten yeah they were all models. in white dresses yes. yeah so these are white is, gloves mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the segregation and stuff mm-hmm. too because it's still pertinent today in our absolutely <laughs> louisiana discourse i not want
0: to give the idea that new orleans is perfect it's but not. it's it is a melting pot in a lot of ways it is so.
1: and so when nelson was in college 1890s she was interacting with other peoples of color because she was at a historically black college.
0: Yes, which it still is today.
1: And um, when she got done, she, if I'm not mistaken, worked as an educator.
0: Yes, she was in a New teacher. Orleans. Mm-hmm.
1: And it, but it wasn't long before she left.
0: She left, and when she left, she did not come back. Mm-hmm. So let's get into when she when she moved away.
1: She never came back to Louisiana after she left.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: she when she left, she went to New, New England, the mid-Atlantic part of the United States, and started, I believe, when she was 20, got published.
0: Violets and Other Tales in 1895. And she was just 20 when she published that. Wow. Yeah, and they say that this might be one of the first. And this blows my mind. I don't know. I don't trust my resource <laughs> for this. But this might be the first collection of short stories published by an uh, African-American woman.
1: I maybe could buy it. Uh-huh. Because I'm thinking short stories are kind of a, man, I don't, I don't know. I might be talking out of my nose here. But I think that's a fairly modern collections of short yeah, stories. Yeah, that's true. But she moved to New England.
0: She moved to New England. Continued and to teach, right? She did continue to teach. Um, now, in 1898, she got married for the first time.
1: To? To
0: Paul Lawrence Dunbar.
1: Who's very well-known. Poet. For, mm-hmm.
0: And they met, and I thought this was interesting. I think they started corresponding in 1896, because he saw wow. something she had published, and he saw her picture, and he started writing to she her. She was
1: still a girl, because I mean, twenty one—you're still a young lady at that point.
0: Yeah, exactly. How old was he? I never, I never looked it up.
1: I feel like because, he was a great deal older
0: than her. Yeah, because he was very established too, yes. right? And I had mean, time to be. this is—I mean,
1: this is where our "Hey, everybody, we don't know what we're talking about" comes in, <laughs> because I'm drawing back to like sophomore year of college with uh-huh. this. but I want to say. Paul Ox Dunbar, I feel like his writing, uh-huh. the stuff he produced, had some kind of connection to, like, Africanism. Mm-hmm. Reconnecting with one's roots. Yeah. I don't know. Now, like, again, it's been a while since I've studied his work. I haven't read his
0: stuff, but I will.
1: But I feel like that's kind of what he... So, it's interesting. Uh-huh. I mean, we'd have to do more research again.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's interesting when you pair him and her together because their works are pretty disparate so,
0: mm, and they had a quite volatile relationship mm-hmm.
1: tumultuous yeah um and so in
0: 1902 they separated after they got into an argument he almost beat her to death. he almost killed her and they didn't they didn't divorce you told me
1: they didn't she they were estranged from one another yeah. until he finally died in 1906
0: yeah. So, yeah, that was her first marriage. After that, she moved to Delaware where she took a teaching job at an all black school, Howard High School in Wilmington.
1: And I'm thinking, if you want to go somewhere safe, I mean, Delaware,
0: (laughs) that's where you go. No one's going to think you're in Delaware. I'm like, and I
1: just (laughs) think, if you're in trouble, if you're hiding from somebody, just go to Delaware. Just go to Delaware,
0: yeah. So
1: she did, she went to Delaware and she taught. And I, she was still writing, of course. Uh-huh. Um, this is well after The Goodness of St. Roque was printed. Mm-hmm. Um, and since we're reading from that 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 collection of short stories, maybe we can talk a little bit about it. She was writing that in a period of time where local color fiction was extremely popular. Uh-huh. And especially northern audiences were consuming it at an enormous rate. Local colors mostly associated with the south, sometimes like the midwest. Yeah. And it was basically stories that were foreign yeah. quote unquote to uh northern readership the people who were super literary and yeah somebody a lot of people know about in terms of local color is another louisiana writer Kate Chopin who was uh-huh. right
0: yeah
1: and so she was writing at around that time and people would write these things
0: you're speaking about culturally then yes like just the mysticism that surrounds mysticism. southern at, at
1: this point, people were really getting into the whole moonlight and magnolia. Okay. Enough time had passed after the Civil War yeah. that the North was like thinking we did destroy this
0: culture, uh-huh.
1: and what's left is a remnant, and we want to. It's Explore foreign and strange, it. yeah. And so people could get away with things uh-huh. in their local color fiction, like Chopin was able to weave sex a lot of sexuality in her writing, really, overt, covert, and people up north were not offended by it because they're like, oh, this is southern, and so. In a way, Dunbar Nelson is kind of taking advantage of this literary period uh to, I don't know, it's hard to say because we don't know if she was thinking, man, I've got to get something published, I need some money, or if she was thinking, this would be a really great way for me to convey my culture and actually have people read it.
0: Read it, because they're interested Mm -hmm. in it right now.
1: So I don't know what it was, but whatever the reasoning behind it, she rode this wave, and uh, people did read The Goodness of St.
0: Rogue. And we were talking about it earlier, and I think we were both very suspicious of of her motivations for writing The Goodness of St. Rogue, because she left, and she didn't come back, so you have this book that, this collection of short stories that really honors uh, where she's from, and does such a great job Mm. at, like, capturing all of that, but she she didn't come back, and it makes you think, how? Because if I'm away from New Orleans for too long, I start to fall apart?
1: You know, it's it's a great question. And I remember in college in a Southern literature course, reading something that was written a long time ago. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it was Faulkner or somebody who said, the only people in the world who have a genuine sense of place, uh-huh. are Southerners. Oh, wow. Meaning when you leave the South, no matter where you are or no matter why you've left, there's always a longing to return And it home.
0: pulls, it pulls yeah. you back.
1: And you have that connection with New Orleans. Yeah. I have that connection to home also. Yeah. And for whatever reason, she never was compelled to come home to visit. Uh, she didn't write a whole... Like, her writings were not just... Louisiana all the time. That yeah. was not her necessarily wow. her one inspiration. I think she was more interested in the fact that she was a woman and a no. woman of color yes. than the fact that she was a Louisiana Creole. Yeah. So it's kind of weird because that collection of short stories, The mm-hmm. Goodness of St. Rogue, exists as a very important historical and cultural text.
0: Rare historical. Oh, oh that's totally. so grateful that she actually did write it. I just wonder what her motivations exactly.
1: were. Well, it gives, if you read some of these stories it gives you a genuine glimpse uh-huh. into the intricacies of the culture, okay? The difficulties that were going on, the the little details that, look, nobody else would have been uh, privy to.
0: No, yeah, and it's almost like a, a history a history book for me because there are, right. are um, elements of Creole culture that I just never picked up on. And for other things are affirming for me, like things that I grew up, Hearing and seeing in my yes. family, I'm like, oh, this isn't just something that my right. family does. This is a Creole thing, exactly. and it connects me to the community even more. So it's great.
1: So it does serve a great function. In yeah. The, in the same breath, it's kind of strange because if she was so keen on preserving her culture or promoting it and trying to keep it from becoming extinct, mm-hmm. why is the goodness of Saint Roque fundamentally like what exists of her great Creole, you know, yeah, just the literary only works? So it's interesting and. Interesting, 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 interesting. I know. I'm sorry.
0: I I do it too. But, oh, I do. I want to get to the part that I think we're going to be guilty. I'm doing air quotes of this for the rest of time. But I want to talk about what she got up to in Delaware.
1: You know, I don't know if you and I just have a proclivity for this or if we're magnetically things are drawn to us. It seems like we only come across queer writers. Yes! And, and, and
0: we, when we both were doing research we knew that there was like a whisper that she might have had like a same-sex relationship. It was in the
1: farthest corner of my mind. Yeah, not and even, like
0: not readily available, mm-hmm. but I had to go Google her name yeah. with like lesbian behind it and then BAM! Here we go. When she was teaching at Howard High School, she entered into a same-sex relationship with its principal which is the boss yes (laughs) edwina cruz and it was a long-term relationship um i don't know how long but she married again in 1910 so you have between like somewhere in maybe 1902 between 1910 so that is a pretty long relationship longer than anyone i've ever had so (laughs) wow that had to be pretty serious she had to have like you know she wasn't like playing around
1: you know we don't know anything about people's personal feelings mm-hmm. we can look back and say this is the historical context yeah like, we know they had these relationships exactly this is what they wrote was she bisexual was she a lesbian these are things we don't know but she has this relationship with another woman yes and then she gets married to her second husband and Talk a little bit about him because I have some thoughts.
0: Yeah, because you were saying that you couldn't find much on him, I and couldn't. I didn't find too much. So in 1910, she married Henry Arthur Callis, and he was a teacher. And at this point, we did the math probably badly, um, but she was like 35. Yeah, and he was 12 years younger than her. So he was 23. So yeah, she married a 23-year-old man who was. I mean, the marriage only lasted about a year. So I,
1: I question this. Uh huh. This savors to me of a marriage of convenience yes did someone get wind of her and the principal did she would could she gonna lose her job was the principal gonna lose her job were they being threatened for her to have married a 23 year old man for the marriage to have lasted less than a year yeah she's got her first husband's last name Uh and her last husband's last names attached to one another but Uh this callous man
0: he doesn't get the last name uh, so
1: I just wondering if this was some kind of special relationship to cover up. Maybe I don't know. Maybe. I think
0: my first question was: Was he an American citizen? <laughs> like, who it, knows? Would, was was son... he a
1: gay man?
0: You, you, no one knows.
1: Nobody knows. Yeah, but uh,
0: coming off the heels of that relation, that long relationship right. with um, Edwina Cruz, you you wonder what this second marriage was.
1: If it was just to cover up, yeah, kind of smoke and mirrors. Hey, we're not really doing anything bad here because yeah. I've got this little husband. Uh, we don't know. And
0: how do we know about Edwina Cruz? Like, I know there's probably letters, sure. but w- was this something that was publicly known? Was it a little bit more okay because she was in New England? Like, why? Why do we? Know this
1: about goes this? right back to episode three when we're talking about Natalie Clifford Barney, mm. who was born a year after yeah. Dunbar Nelson.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, we kept saying Barney lived in Paris. hmm. She was a wealthy woman. She got to be an out and proud lesbian. She yep. got to have these wicked relationships constantly you know here we have a woman who's living in delaware Uh same period of time not wealthy yeah a woman of color so it kind of she wouldn't yeah
0: like using my argument in that episode that it would be easier for natalie cliver barney to live Mm -hmm. out loud versus
1: this woman yeah
0: versus this woman who probably needed to keep her job and couldn't be her one hundred percent true self. But I mean she got married three times to men, so maybe
1: Exactly. Well, that being said, what's the alternative? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess she could have done pulled the Willow Cather and never married. Yeah. But I mean if you're thinking about security I mean buying
0: a house as a as a woman was difficult oh. back then.
1: So I mean she wasn't making tons of money from her riding. Exactly.
0: So maybe maybe it was of convenience, but I mean she spent a long time being married. I mean she her did. third marriage was in nineteen sixteen and she married an African American journalist, Robert Nelson. He right. kind of knew about her extramarital lesbian affairs. Like she kept she kept going on with them even when she was married. So she had relationships with a journalist, Faye Jackson Robinson, and an artist, Helene London. Which these are the ones that we know about. Right. There were probably more. There's no Dylan. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, but whatever was going on in their private life, they did wind up relocating to Washington, D.C. Yes. She and um, Nelson did. Yeah. But she was writing, at this time, she was attempting to write professionally Mm -hmm. in a journalistic capacity. And she
0: was kind of forced to. In 1920, she was fired from her teaching job because of, and this is what I I laughed about, but it was like angry laughter um, about her increasing political activism, which included women's suffrage, anti-lynching and peace advocacy could those, you
1: imagine well those are really controversial yeah really topics, controversial so I can women see, should vote
0: don't lynch um, my people and um don't be peaceful. War. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well i can see why they fired her for that <laughs> oh yeah of so course. i can't credit
0: that's amazing intense sarcasm just now i don't think it was that she was saying anything at work even i think it was because oh. she was being published see
1: that harkens back to zitkala Shah who got fired. Yeah. which that's a little different. I mean,
0: I, I told you this earlier. Yeah. Like, it, she was working at an assimilationist school, and she was writing anti-assimilationist things. So I can almost <laughs> even understand <Right>. that more. <laughs> she was fighting the good fight, but yes, yeah. So, but this is just like, oh, my employer doesn't want me to advocate for peace. Okay.
1: Well, shucks. Yeah. So she got fired, and yeah. I guess figured, you know what, I have political convictions, I'm a published author, why not become a journalist? I'm
0: married, Mm -hmm. like, there's more income coming in, I can invest in this.
1: But she did not find success, at least not in our modern, like, she struggled a lot with getting published. Um, She wrote for one African Methodist Episcopal uh, publication, she wrote for several newspapers, um, I think that were geared towards the African American community but she kept running into issues with being paid for the work wow. and for getting credit for the work
0: oh that would drive me crazy right
1: so she kept bumping into stuff and at one point she lamented and said like my pen is cursed I can't earn uh, a living by it
0: yeah um,
1: so I think she was frustrated And it is frustrating when you're a writer and you feel that you have something to say and it's not being said. Or it's being said with somebody else's name.
0: Uh, Yeah, no.
1: So I think it was tough for her. um, And and that's why I kept thinking these marriages to these men had to have afforded her some level of financial security. A little bit of
0: freedom, yeah. Had
1: to have. Yeah. She was limited. I mean, like her mother, she didn't have a lot of choices. But this
0: is the time. And, oh, I forgot to mention this before. The black... Um, Southern migration. It wasn't just Southern. I think it's called the Black Migration, where Mm -hmm. everyone was kind of moving to New England, Mm -hmm. and moving specifically to New York, and the Harlem Renaissance was in full swing. So, I mean, I guess it would be a little bit more romantic to pick up and go and kind of have this... Probably so. You know, it would be easier to leave teaching, I think. Yes. Um, And then be like, I'm going to be a writer. And that
1: being said, imagine how frustrating it was probably felt for her. Mm -hmm. Saying, okay, my peers are writing this impactful, powerful stuff, yeah, social social shifting material is being produced yeah. in the fall of Renaissance uh-huh. and she's I mean, can you imagine if you were in her shoes, you'd be sitting there thinking, And here I am.
0: (laughs) Not getting credit.
1: (laughs) And I can't get anything done. Yeah.
0: There were like tons of big names being just like built up at this time. And we're going to talk about it more in our next episode. In our next episode. Yeah.
1: So it was probably very frustrating for her. And I know she remained married to her third husband until Until she died. Until she died. Yeah.
0: And so he knew about her affairs. They had some arguments about it. He was very upset by it. But they never divorced and...
1: And she yeah. was fairly young when she died.
0: She died on September 18th, in 1935, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So
1: she was only 60. Mm. Which I mean, only 60. <laughs> but I mean, think about it. Natalie Clifford Barney was 97. Yeah. Um, Willa Cather was in her 70s or 80s. So she was. She, and I know she suffered. She had health health issues, really, to her heart.
0: I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I mean, she's in many ways. You and I talked about this earlier. She's kind of, in our minds, slightly dull compared to some of the people we get into. Yeah, just
0: her life, her life story, yeah. and I mean, she's had such incredible things oh happen gosh. to her. She's moved a lot. She had different relationships and romances and stuff. Yes. But yeah, reading it and just doing research rang a little bit dull.
1: But if all she ever did in her life was yeah. print the goodness of Saint Roque, that's worth
0: oh my a gosh. lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what? Even, I was thinking, I was just comparing her to Angelina Wilde Grimke and, like, the other people that we have, you mm-hmm. know, done episodes on. And Wald Grimke never married. She Mm-mm. kind of lived in the same close, yep. you know, area. Same
1: period of time, too. Same
0: period of time. And I don't know if I had more fun researching, like, her family history, right. but her life seemed very... I mean if we're going to say dull, dull, it didn't seem very like I and mean, very much happened, but I think there were so mysteries, so much mystery surrounding her, and I think me and you are, are very eager to infer like yeah. what what um Alice Dunbar Nelson's motivations were, why she right. might have done certain things. We might be wrong. Right.
1: But, but and you know as Louisianans, I think we we want so much from her and she just you know what I mean, we want more. Oh yeah. We want more. Yeah. This is somebody who I wish had spent her life writing stuff about her girlhood.
0: Because she does it so well. I know,
1: and it's material that nobody else bothered. Look, there were plenty of white Louisianans writing around the same time mm-hmm. as her. White women in Louisiana yeah. writing about Creole culture, but for them, it was viewing it through an anthropological lens. This is Dunbar Nelson, which lived is this. frustrating. I
0: don't. I don't want a white person's interpretation uh, of. of um, black Creoles, right?
1: You're protective of that, yeah. And there were there were Black Creole men who were writing things, uh-huh. but they weren't mostly they weren't bothering with the courtship rituals, no, with the female aspects of those, Creolism, yeah. And
0: what's available to you know, women yes. at this time, I want to know. And I want to know how that affected them because I know how I would feel if my only exactly. option was to get married or my only option, I think I'm going a little bit too far back, um, was to go to a ball and become the mistress, lifelong was mistress Look. of a white man Awkward. with a wife.
1: Octoroon and quadroon balls were happening in Louisiana until the 1920s and 30s. Oh my gosh. I mean, that... Uh, look, for all I know, they still take place.
0: Okay? <laughs> Delphine, I've was, never been invited, thank goodness. So, I don't know.
1: But, you know, this... She was living in a period of time... Where the quadroon and the octarine ball, the kept woman on Delphine Street, mm-hmm. in the White House, this was a part of her reality.
0: I want to hear that reality, and that's not that kind of thing isn't in here. She's and too
1: respectable, I think, to get into but that. But if
0: there were more Creole women writers from I this time period, that would just be the most interesting read.
1: You know, when I was doing my thesis research, uh-huh. uh, I think the only person who bothered writing what you're talking about, about oh. the balls and stuff, was a white man named George Washington Cable. Oh. And he wasn't even a white Creole. But he was he was really making an effort to put this stuff down on paper.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that. He but, was trying.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah. he, for him, it wasn't like, oh, this is really cool. He was thinking... I'm seeing something special vanish. So he made an attempt. Uh-huh. But what you're saying is Well, he's is, calling
0: it special. He is. I want to see it from the point of view of, of somebody a real who lived woman it who doesn't have an option That's who right. is like I have to marry this white man That's who has exactly a wife right. or not marry, but you know. Be kept by. Yeah, it. be kept by. It
1: so yeah, it's there's so much mystique. There's so much mystery mm-hmm. that shrouds Louisiana's so much of Louisiana history, so much of New Orleans history because we're left with bits and pieces of history were left with a lopsided perspective yeah so yeah it's and that it's, lends
0: to the mysticism though that it does that makes it interesting saying, to you yeah, and yeah yeah exactly it does. There's, there's always more to find out which is fun
1: and long long story short by the time she died in 1935 creoles had lost their special social positioning they were mm. delegated or they, had to, they were segregated to the colored line
0: yeah. in
1: Louisiana. They were no longer Creoles. They were people, they were just black people. Maybe she didn't go back home for, for those reasons. I yeah,
0: know. I mean, yeah, maybe she felt like her culture was being drained. And, and what's the point was. in going back to witness that and see people stop yeah. speaking French? And my dad is the first generation that, that doesn't. That doesn't, yeah. Creole is,
1: Creole French, Louisiana Creole French, I believe is fundamentally extinct. Uh, if there's 500 speakers left, it would blow my mind.
0: I've started learning French in order to feel a, a connection to my roots, and I'm like, it's not the same French. It's not.
1: You're and what do my... you do? Yeah, so it's tough. Yeah. But I'm interested to delve into this reading because it's not only a special Louisiana short story, mm-hmm. it's a... Carnival. Mardi Gras, yeah. carnival, <laughs> masked tale so um i'm excited you're going to be reading it yes i am in your very languid creole oh my tongue.
0: my i have none of that
1: i cannot wait
0: <laughs> okay well let's get into that and then after we'll talk about her writing a little bit wonderful a carnival jangle by alice dunbar nelson there is a merry jangle of bells in the air an all-pervading sense of jester's noise, and the flaunting vividness of rural colors. The streets swarm with humanity, humanity in all shapes, manners, forms, laughing, pushing, jostling, crowding, a mass of men and women and children, as varied and assorted in their several individual peculiarities as ever a crowd that gathered in one locality since the days of Babel. It is Carnival in New Orleans, a brilliant Tuesday in February, when the very air gives forth an ozone intensely exhilarating, making one long to cut capers. The buildings are a blazing mass of royal purple and golden yellow, national flags, bunting, and decorations that laugh in the glint of the Midas sun. The streets are a crush of jesters and maskers, Jim crows and clowns, Ballet girls and Mephistos, Indians and monkeys of wild and sudden flashes of music, of glittering pageants and comic ones, of feathered and belled horses, a dream of color and melody and fantasy gone wild in an effervescent bubble of beauty that shifts and changes and passes kaleidoscope-like before the bewildered eye. A bevy of bright-eyed girls and boys of that uncertain age that hovers between childhood and maturity were moving down Canal Street when there was a sudden jostle with another crowd meeting them. For a minute, there was a deafening clamor of shouts and laughter, cracking of the whips which all maskers carry, a jingle and clatter of carnival bells, and the masked and unmasked extricated themselves and moved from each other's paths. But in the confusion, a tall prince of darkness had whispered to one of the girls in the unmasked crowd, You'd better come with us, Flo. You're wasting time in that tame gang. Slip off. They'll never miss you. "'We'll go get you a rig and show you what life is.' And so it happened when a half-hour passed and the bright-eyed bevy missed Flo and couldn't find her, wisely giving up the search at last. She, the quietest and most bashful of the lot, was being initiated into the mysteries of what life is. Down Bourbon Street and on Toulouse and St. Peter's Streets, there are quaint little old-world places where one may be disguised effectually for a tiny consideration. "'Thither, guided by the shapely Mephisto "'and guarded by the team of jockeys and ballet girls, "'tripped Flo into one of the lowest-ceilinged, "'dingiest and most ancient-looking of the shops they stepped. "'A disguise for the demoiselle,' announced Mephisto "'to the woman who met them. "'She was small and wizened and old, "'with yellow flabby jaws, "'a neck like the throat of an alligator, "'and straight white hair that stood from her head uncannily stiff. "'But the demoiselle wishes to appear a boy.' un petit garçon she inquired gazing eagerly at flo's long slender frame her voice was old and thin like the high quavering of an imperfect tuning fork and her eyes were sharp as talons in their grasping glance mademoiselle does not wish such a costume gruffly responded mephisto ma foi there is no other said the ancient shrugging her shoulders but one is left now mademoiselle would make a fine troubadour Flo, said Mephisto, it's a daredevil scheme, try it, no one will ever know it but us, and we'll die before we tell. Besides, we must, it's late and you couldn't find your crowd. And that was why you might have seen a Mephisto and a slender troubadour of lovely form, with mandolin flung across his shoulder, followed by a bevy of jockeys and ballet girls, laughing and singing as they swept down Rampart Street. When the flash and glare and brilliancy of Canal Street have paled upon tired eye, when it is yet too soon to go home to such a prosaic thing as dinner and one still wishes for novelty then it is wise to go into the lower districts there is fantasy and fancy and grotesqueness run wild in the costuming and the behavior of the maskers such dances and whoops and leaps as these hideous indians and devils do indulge in such wild curvetings and long walks in the open squares where whole groups do congregate it is wonderfully amusing Then too, there is a ball in every available hall, a delirious ball where one may dance all day for 10 cents, dance and grow mad for joy, and never know who were your companions, and be yourself unknown. And in the exhilaration of the day, one walks miles and miles and dances and skips and the fatigue is never felt. In Washington Square, away down where Royal Street empties its stream of children, great and small, into the broad channel of Elysian Fields Avenue, There was a perfect Indian powwow. With a little imagination, one might have willed away the vision of the surrounding houses and fancied oneself again in the forest, where the natives were holding a sacred riot. The square was filled with spectators, masked and unmasked. It was amusing to watch these mimic red men. They seemed so fierce and earnest. Suddenly, one chief touched another on the elbow. See that Mephisto and Troubadour over there, he whispered huskily. Yes, who are they? I don't know the devil, responded the other quietly, but I'd know that other form anywhere. It's Leon, see? I know those white hands like a woman's, and that restless head. Ha! But there may be a mistake. No, i know that one anywhere. I feel it is he. I'll pay him now. Ah, sweetheart, you've waited long, but you shall feast now he was caressing something long and life and glittering beneath his jacket in a mass dance it is easy to give a death blow between the shoulders two crowds meet and laugh and shout and mingle almost inextricably and if a shriek of pain should arise it is not noticed in the din and when they part if one should stagger and fall bleeding to the ground can anyone tell who has given the blow there is nothing but an unknown stiletto on the ground the crowd has dispersed and mass tell no tales anyway There is murder. But by whom? For what? Quien sabe? And that is how it happened on Carnival Night. In the last mad moments of Rex's reign, a broken-hearted mother sat gazing wide-eyed and mute at a horrible something that lay across the bed. Outside, the long, sweet march music of many bands floated in as if in mockery, and the flash of rockets and Bengal lights illuminated the dead, white face of the girl troubadour. So that was A Carnival Jangle by Alice Dunbar Nelson.
1: It has been so long since I've read any of her stuff, and (laughs) the minute that it started to pick up, Uh I thought, it reminded me of why I love her stuff so much. The lushness of the wording. I mean, these are dense sentences to read. Oh,
0: trust me, I struggled a lot. Like, if that sounds anything, like anything cohesive, uh, it's because of editing. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, this was just a short, like, three-page story in a little book, and look how much she accomplished so in much. those three pages.
1: There's, There are about a million different things we can get into. I would like to, since based off of our historical discussion earlier, I would like to really discuss
0: her writing. Yeah Okay Sorry That's that's, that's exactly what I was going to say No yeah because we know We know what was influencing her at this time We know about her history Mm -hmm. So let's Yeah let's definitely focus on her writing
1: What I think she achieves Really well Is her conveyance of Tone Space Mm -hmm. And emotion In such a short It means three pages And It's hard as a writer To really Paint a picture through your words.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: For me, I'm very... I'm languid. I write. It's like spilling of words.
0: It's hard to be concise. You do that very well, though. Like It it doesn't drag on because there are a lot of people who who really focus on imagery and place and setting and just drone on. And it sounds... Ingenuine genuine in a lot of ways. Um, right. It sounds like they sat down and they're like, I'm gonna be a writer today and I'm just gonna make it flowery and romantic. And she is just painting this picture of New Orleans quickly while the story moves. Right. And it's, as a person who's been you know, born and raised here, I say yes, this is New Orleans that I even know today. And it's a different time period.
1: I think she's got to be drawing, when she's writing this, she's got to be drawing on preconceived notions she's taking for granted in a good way that her readership has some idea of what New Orleans is. Mm -hmm. Because when you're reading that, whatever New Orleans is in your mind, she's laying the foundation of her story on it and allowing your mind to create something from her words. Uh She's paint, Because when you're reading it, when we're reading it, we're like, wow, this is just like New Orleans. You know, this is very authentic. But I think if you're somebody from maine Mm -hmm. and you're reading this you've got an idea of what mardi gras is probably yeah new orleans even if it's just like a real abstract thought but whatever it is in your brain when you're reading that her writing Catapult off of that.
0: Oh, yes, because it's talking about things that people in Maine who've never been to New Orleans cannot understand. Like, it's little inside jokes or, like, you know, memories that I have that no one else would know. Like, what she says in the exhilaration of the day, one walks miles and miles and dances and skips, and the fatigue is never felt. Mm -hmm. And I, I like, had chills because I'm like, I just imagine every Mardi Gras where I get on the ferry and I cross the river and I walk all through the French Quarter twice all the way, Mm -hmm. and I'm just dancing. I'm in a second line. I am I just, I have all this energy and I'm a very tired person usually. And then maybe later I'll come home that night and be like, wow, I, my Fitbit is like vibrating, like, you've walked so much today. What's going on? <laughs> We're gonna die. And like, and I'm laying down and my whole body hurts and I'm like, Yeah, you did practically uh, dance down a street squatting. (laughs) You don't have the glutes for that. But, you know, and and this woman in in the early 1900s, it's like, yeah, that's what Mardi Gras is. And it still is that to this day.
1: It is such a religious solemnity that comes with this. Yes. Because what you're talking about, what she's talking about, is like a revival. Mm Mm-hmm. You're just... It, you're so in, caught up in the spirit of it all uh-huh. that your physical body doesn't matter much. It's yes. just a vessel to carry your spirit <laughs> around.
0: And that's but, that's what we were talking just, about yeah. with the mysticism. That's like yeah. capturing the spirit of Louisiana. And she doesn't use any crazy, like, like words or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has a few, like, Creole and French words in here. Foi,
1: stuff like that. Yeah,
0: exactly. All the things I couldn't pronounce well.
1: And... Her her ability to describe, too. We were mm-hmm. talking about space and stuff, but when we get to the old woman. Yes. You and I <laughs> you... <laughs> both, I almost fainted. Talking about the, the yellow sagging jaws and um, uh, the alligator. alligator. Yeah, uh, she
0: had the neck like the throat of an alligator. Um,
1: how much more vivid and particular and descriptive.
0: Mm-hmm. She's so aware of, of the place that she's writing about the culture that she needs to honor, mm-hmm. um, but the story that she's trying to tell at the same time, and she's melding it, marrying it all together perfectly. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's magic. Yeah, I'm trying to like seek out any devices, like specific devices that she uses. Is there a word for when you use lots of ands?
1: And, and, and. Yeah, I noticed
0: that. Oh, uh, well, she does that Just a lot. A and I like it, it brings together Every like the the energy that she's trying to convey I need we need to restate
1: there's a I think what you're talking about is there's so many different ways you can lay out your writing and and serves as an elongation device Mm -hmm. when you're writing because Mm -hmm. instead of saying I walked down the street period Mm -hmm. bought I bought some Yeah. I don't know, food. You can say, I walked down the street and I bought some food. It affects cadence. Yes. And it affects the way it is read in terms of, like, breath and your mind processing the materials. It, so.
0: it almost seems like abundance in a lot of ways, especially when she's talking, she's describing this, and she's ex- describing this place. It's it's an elongation, but it's also like a stacking in my head. It's like, and this, and this, and this, and I'm full, and I'm mm-hmm. abundant, and this is Mardi Gras, and it's carnival, and I'm-
1: Excess. Yes, there exactly,
0: and that's all I want. And I, when I'm talking about the language that she's using here, I think that that's very important to the theme of the story. I agree.
1: And I want to talk about this, Pertinent as it may be, her stories in general tend to be very sensational in their endings. Mm-mm. She's not somebody who has the subtle, quiet, like, and it all is wrapped up in uh-huh. a little bow. Here, you've got this girl; she's murdered exactly. because of mistaken identity. Yes, and after you got done reading, something I never thought about after reading this short story is. What, what, The old lady who's doing the costumes, what did she know about what's going on here? Uh-huh. Oh, we only have this one Troubadour costume.
0: Yeah, what What are the odds of that?
1: And her talon-like eyes. The, huh. There's
0: something... Oh, the thought of an alligator, which is like predator. a predator. <laughs> oh, my. What did she know about but, that? But, I mean, <laughs> that goes less from, like, I, I want this girl dead to more of, like, maybe something, like, dark and sinister and, I don't know, mystical in its own way, you know? Right. Like this isn't old lady character.
1: I agree. The old lady is established. I think she's. A, I would say she's a New Orleans archetype. Mm, yeah. Not just in literature, but in like American consciousness. Yeah. The mysterious soothsayer prophetess in the
0: dark dingy dingy yeah dingy shop. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So. I think she serves an interesting purpose, even if she's not trying to, say, get this girl killed. Yeah. Maybe she's the controller of destiny. Maybe that's the device that's being used mm, here.
0: Yeah. It's mystic. So this ancient. has to happen. And it's so interesting that Flo dies at the end. I thought I read this whole book, but I think that it's, the pages were so short that I just flipped it and didn't right. realize it. Because I have notes on every other story in here, because I write notes in books, and there's nothing on here, and I was screaming in my head the whole time I was reading it. So, um, yeah, that's definitely an issue. But the fact that Flo was going off with this man to figure out what life is in quotes and experiences mm-hmm. every like step of life into death, like it's just <laughs> it's it's foreshadowing. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I love it, and it's a short story.
1: Exactly. You said it right then when you said every step of life until death. She mm-hmm. lived a lifetime in an evening, and this mm-hmm. is somebody who based off of what the writer's putting into the story, didn't live much. Quiet, reserved. Yeah. And there's so much sexual connotation that goes into this. Uh The meaning of life.
0: Just him whispering in her ear, leave your friends and come with me. Instantly, I'm like, oh, this is some kind of romance or danger. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So there's there's some interpretable stuff going on. We don't know, you know, uh, maybe this was meant to be a little bit sexual maybe not uh, um,
0: I, I think, think Mardi Gras and carnival in general oh, it's when you you know do things that you no might not normally bar. do although like <clears throat> locals aren't going around flashing anyone that's right. all that's all tourists but
1: that is a disclaimer <laughs> and also a promotional device from us to the city of New Orleans yeah, also, like guys it's not that but
0: nice. also like don't come here and show your tits yeah the uh, locals don't like
1: it no <laughs> Too many Catholics lurking around <laughs> for that.
0: Well, my New Orleans Catholics are a special brand of Catholics.
1: <laughs> also, maybe if we have a chance, I would like to talk about race here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Dunbar Nelson, we talked about this in advance. And
0: I just realized, mm-hmm. with the point you made earlier, no indication of race. So she please, say that again, because that is wonderful.
1: When you get into her stuff, when you get into the goodness of St. Roque, and I mean, it's been a while since I've read every story in it, mm-hmm. Dunbar Nelson does not bother with... Saying specifically this is a black person this mm-hmm. is a white person yeah. you're left to interpret and I think that's important mm-hmm. because we're going back to the discussion we had earlier of the, Louis- of the Louisiana French caste system where yes. the colors are myriad uh-huh. so she drops hints the old woman's yellow mm-hmm. Okay, so we're supposed to infer that this is a person of color mm-hmm. but in the same breath she describes Flo's hand as white I don't think that necessarily I don't think that she's meant to be white.
0: I think she's <laughs> a light skinned exactly. black person.
1: And that's with the beauty of Dunbar Nelson's work. Uh-huh. If if you read The Goodness of Saint Roque, the mm-hmm. title story, though it's it's about Creoles of color. Yeah. They're blonde Creoles of color with blue eyes.
0: Red haired Creoles Red-haired, of color. My you know. dad used to have red See? hair.
1: Yeah. It's about the richness of color yeah, of color
0: variation
1: and how it, it's 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 so special culturally
0: special but irrelevant in a lot of ways it if is. she doesn't have to point it out but coming from a writing perspective i feel like i should and i'm sure she could do this fine but why waste time and space stating the color of this person uh, you know what I mean? when
1: it's not that important to the end of the
0: story no exactly what does it matter if
1: she's a white girl or a Creole woman of color? Yeah. The bottom line is, we're all wrapped up in her experience
0: mm-hmm.
1: at a, at carnival. Yeah. And her death. So I think I think that it's it's special because we're this is a work by a black woman. Uh huh. Okay. Creole woman. A Creole woman of mm-hmm. color and. She's letting us, as readers, glean from Uh her work. Yeah. That's special. And not a lot of people do that. No. Because so much, you know, everybody says, when you're reading something... American literature mm-hmm. and the race is not specified it's we're supposed to believe it's white oh
0: yeah it just defaults to white
1: so she's doing something here that's special she's not bothering to delineate race uh-huh. but she doesn't I, but there's no reason for us to believe these are whites yeah, in any of the there's stories.
0: something injected into every ounce of her story that screams Creole <clears throat> or not even even the story there's another story in here what's it called with the um, German woman Tony's named, wife Tony's wife. That story is she points out in those stories German. like the woman is German and the man is Italian mm-hmm. and that speaks more about New Orleans to me than Creole culture but there's still something vaguely Creole about that story I can't under, I can't grasp it
1: we can't you know we can't underestimate the fact that as authors we view the world as individual human beings we view the world through a special lens. Mm-hmm. You and I don't see things the same way perfectly. We were raised in our... uh, You know, not even just culturally, your family, everything defines that. So I think it's true when you read her work, whether it's Tony's wife, which really doesn't have much to do with Creole culture, or whether it's the goodness (sighs) of St. Rogue. Yes. It all comes from a Creole slant of color because that is her. And and her
0: perspective alone makes it a Creole story.
1: Because she's writing about A world in which she grew up, Uh and she only understands it from a Creole culture. I mean, a Creole perspective of color, because that's what she is. That's incredible. That like I can't approach what it's like to be a black woman because I've never been a black woman. Yeah. But I have my own understanding, whether it is authentic or not, of what maybe it is like to be a black woman.
0: Which is why. You should always broaden your horizon and read from a diverse base of authors and writers and poets and everything, which is what we're trying to do here. And I'm so grateful that we have, like, I want this to be just our reason why we dive into anything. I agree. I love that the perspective alone.
1: I'm, I'm so proud. You were the one that said, hey, it's Mardi Gras, let's do a Louisiana episode. <laughs> I'm so proud we got to have this discussion. Uh-huh. She's somebody that is really outside of African-American theory mm-hmm. and literature. She's really forgotten in a way that so many other people aren't. Yeah. Um, we all know who Zora Neale Hurston is. Yep, yep, we all yep. know who Langston Hughes is. Uh-huh. Who's Alice Dunbar Nelson? She's important and exactly. she's special.
0: Very important. So I'm so glad that you... Gave me this book as a thoughtful, thoughtful <laughs> gift and that you introduced me to her. And I'm a little bit ashamed <laughs> that I didn't know more about her before. Don't but be. Yeah, this was a really, really good choice. And I credit both of us for it. Because we worked together on this episode.
1: Mm-hmm. I would encourage anybody listening who enjoyed her work to get Reading into. More. She's in the public domain. Feel free to look her up. Yes. And it, I think it would behoove anybody to... Do some research on Louisiana Creole authors of color.
0: Mm-hmm. See, and if you find stuff. more, tell us about them, because oh, yeah. it doesn't seem like there are that many.
1: Yeah, I was telling her when I was doing my thesis research, there are a lot of men out there who wrote, but when you're doing research, the people who are scholars who study this stuff, mm-hmm. they're up front and they say, this stuff has been lost. The yeah. French periodicals, when they disappeared, they don't. we don't know anymore.
0: And they weren't translated into Not, English. Yes,
1: plays, mm-hmm. operas that were written by Creoles of color. Yeah have been literally lost wow. to time and space. Yeah. We will never have them again. Yeah. There's some works that exist in French that are popular in France yeah. that we still don't have in America that nobody's bothered to translate. But I think if over time, when we broaden the idea of what the American literary canon is, when, yeah. we, when we reach beyond New England, when we reach beyond English, hmm then we can expand our national literature. There's horizon. so
0: much there that's just not being exactly. recognized. Like we were talking when we did the College shots episode, how little Native American fiction or nonfiction or whatever is like not exactly. on our radar. It's there. We just have to go find it. That's right.
1: So it's up to us, mm-hmm. um, and by us I mean everybody. Yeah,
0: me, you, and everybody listening yeah.
1: to like, do our due diligence and bring We've it into it.
0: the mainstream. That's right. Yes. Well,
1: I'm super pleased with. How this went, I don't think it could have gone better.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you all noticed, but this sound probably sounds a lot better than the last two episodes. <laughs> and uh, since it was my mistake, I'm gonna let Trapper explain to you what happened.
1: Well, we recorded our last two episodes. Yes, in one night. In one night, and when Kate got to editing, she compiled everything and she said, Alright, Trapper, here, I'm sending it to you. Tell me what you think. I was listening to my car and I said, My gosh. I can't make out what I'm saying. (laughs) And and, and you got to understand, Kate is very conscious of the quality of our work. So she's got me sitting right in front of the microphone every time. And we kept saying.
0: Why is Trapper so quiet? Her
1: voice is resonating and all Uh that. I'm like, look, I'm not somebody who's meek and silent. I'm like, is there (laughs) something physically wrong here? Well, God bless Kate. Today we figured out what was wrong. Our oh. microphone was not working last time. It wasn't
0: connecting time. to the computer. Yes. And we were recording through the built-in microphone on a Mac.
1: Which was angled directly at her head.
0: Yes, which is <laughs> why. of me. It's so loud. I, <laughs> the trapper was an old lady in another room. Yeah, I said it
1: felt like she was this vibrant person <laughs> expounding, and I was, like, hovering in the doorway. Yeah. But we fixed it, and I think the quality's going to be much, much better. Much better.
0: Yeah. So um, we've talked about possibly re-recording episodes, and I just crumble at the idea so you you may have suffered through a little bit of uh bad audio but that'll never happen again
1: it's learning process yeah
0: we're working out all the bugs We are and one day we'll be an award-winning podcast with great audio
1: yeah or at least our our mothers will start listening
0: to it (laughs) oh god kill me yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so this has been the fifth episode of the writer who eats podcast i'm your host kate austin
1: i'm trapper kinchin
0: And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a
1: little better. And explore explore the the human human condition condition together.
0: together. R.I.P. Heather. (laughs)